everyone and welcome to another episode of SG Explained. My name is Elliot and joining me as always is my favorite co-host in the world, Rovik. What's up, dude? It's, it's your only co-host, Elliot. <laughs> I, I mean, no, well, once upon a time, you were not my only co-host. And now, That's true, that was Willie. <laughs> yeah, and now you're my favorite. Okay. <laughs> not not now, you, you've always been my favorite. I I'll love you, Willie. Really, yeah. <laughs> um, so today, I thought we'd explore uh, some neighborhoods or um, in particular one of my favorite neighborhoods in Singapore. Uh, this place actually is another uh, one of those iconic places that does have a merchant blood running through it. But now it's known as more of like a cultural center. I think of it as like the place where people go to get connected with Singapore's like hipster past. 100%, 100%. And to this day, I would say that uh, we haven't shied away from gentrification uh, from this area and a lot of hipster outlets are here as well. Uh, none other than our very good uh, Katong, you know, the Tanjong Katong. We have songs about it as well. We have songs like, you know, uh, our favorite National Day song, the Tanjong Katong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was surprised that in all the episodes we've done, we've never done neighborhood episodes. Look out for, in the future, we might do Yishun. <laughs> <laughs> the Stranger Things part of Singapore. Who knows, one day. But yeah, so today's focus is going to be on Katong. You know, growing up, I was an Eastside boy. Until this very day, it's still a regular hangout spot with me and my friends. Did you know I was also an Eastside boy? Growing up, yeah. <laughs> I was a Badoka. Putting the okay in Badok. Exactly, exactly. I was in Badok for almost all of my childhood until I think when I was 13 and then I moved to Clementi. So I went all the way to the other end. Wow, you flipper, you, yeah, you just went all the way across, across the line. I've had the best of both worlds, one would say. Hey, that's true, that's true. Katong is not unfamiliar. Everyone thinks of one particular culture when they think of Katong. And usually it's with the Peranakans. And this is where it starts, you know. Katong used to be filled with coconut plantations and used as like a weekly retreat by like wealthy city dwellers. And Katong developed into like this residential suburb. It became populated by a growing English-educated middle class, especially the Peranakans and the Eurasians. In fact, uh, the term Peranakan is actually rooted in like an Indonesian Malay word that means local born, which generally refers to people of Chinese, Malay, and Indonesian heritage. Katong is actually an exotic species of turtle. Like the name Katong itself, I used to refer to this exotic species of turtle, but it has now gone extinct. Let us hope that that is the only Katong that goes extinct, okay? And it also refers to like the rippling effect of a sea mirage when looking at a shoreline. I read it on the NLB website, so it has to be true. Tanjong Katong was a popular beach along the east coast, and Tanjong, in case you guys are wondering, actually means Cape in Malay. So Tanjong Katong refers to the beach area of Katong, and Katong is probably the wider district. And we're going to explore a little bit more about the roots of how it came to be, what kind of culture surrounded it in the pre-independence days. Katong's history has been rooted in prestige and wealth. Many wealthy English, Portuguese, Anglo-French, and Chinese settlers bought parcels of land there besides the sea to cultivate plantations. They built business empires from trading in these early international commodities such as coconut, cotton, and gambier. So actually, if you remember the merchants episode, or even our singlish episode, you would have learned that actually in this area was where there were a lot of the colonial influence and, you know, from the merchants episode, of course, a lot 
lot of the international trade happening. So we're starting to connect a lot of the dots. The earliest cultivation took place in 1823 when Francis James Bernard, son-in-law of Lieutenant Colonel William Farquhar, famous guy, the first European resident of Singapore, started a coconut estate in the district. Gradually, the Crown of Singapore sold plots of land in the area, stretching from Frankel Avenue, Siglap Road, all the way to the Geelong River. And from Geelong Road to the sea, land was granted to individuals in large parcels ranging anywhere from 8 to 200 hectares. Pioneer Estate owners included Thomas Dunman, Thomas Crane, Sir Jose Del Media, John Armstrong, Wampohu Ake, famous guy, we remember him from the Botanic Gardens episode, Chu Ju Chiet, and the Little Family. So most of the land was given over to coconut plantations because of the suitably sandy conditions, although cotton was also introduced in February 1836. Cotton planting was largely a failure, though, and only coconut plantations remained. In the early 20th century, uh, Katong had this prominent landmark known as like Katong Ember. It was a Malay fishing village, you know, a kampong, that used to exist in an area between East Coast Road and Ember Road. Kampong Ember was filled with like thatched timber houses on stilts. The things that we see in drawings at the National Gallery all the time, with the arrangement of the houses being like irregular, clustered, and created this highly porous urban fabric. The configuration of the urban environment was echoed in the social activities of its people who were living there. And the communities that existed in the kampong were very close-knitted according to sources. Between the houses in Kampong Amber, sandwiched all these like large communal spaces, spaces that suggested and encouraged activities among neighbours in the katong. As such, the inhabitants of Kampong Amber were observed to spend much of their time outdoors in these spaces. And imagine, they, these guys were by the sea back in the day. It's island life. It sounds so idyllic, like being in like the Maldives or something, you know? They could be outside like doing like house chores, um, under the house's veranda, uh, plucking bean sprouts, like pounding chili paste all out in the open. Or they could be like talking to their neighbours in such spaces for like very long periods of time. It was during a special occasion that the kampong spirit was more evident uh, and the neighbourhood would all gather under a same roof and gontong royong. Okay, so gontong royong is this malata meaning working together. In the present, most of the communal activities happen only within like private boundaries but back then you know it was almost like a way of life to, to be integrated with one's community Katong in itself always symbolized community it was something that they took a lot of pride in if uh, if I could say and I think it's important to call this out I'm calling it out because I'm remembering so much from the Singlish episode now which is that actually Singlish in itself was birthed out of the Katong district. Uh, and the reason for that is because you had this heavy concentration of English European communities in this area. And then you had the Kampong, right? So you had people who were from the region who did not speak English. Because of that, two almost distinct worlds being side by side in this very compact area. Uh, that was where Singlish started to form as people started to, you know, copy and emulate what people were saying in English, but they were, of course, adapting it. It's really just changing the way that Singapore's identity went forward. I just love this because you're showing two different parts in one small space. Before the land reclamation of like East Coast that was carried out between 1963 and 1985, so, you know, during our independence, 
independence kind of like years. As part of this 1971 concept plan, Kampong Amber, you know, it was sitting right before the sea. So during this period, there was a strong relationship between, as I said, uh, Kampong Amber's community and the ocean itself. Because it was not just a place for like food source, but it was their livelihood. You know, we had a lot of fishermen who were selling their catch from the seaside every single morning. And, you know, because it's six at the seaside, uh, the sand and the soil around the area actually contained very high levels of salt. And the land was not ideal for growing vegetables and fruits. The sea became everything, you know, to these people. They had to build their entire careers around it. The spaces between the sea and Kampong Amber were very permeable. And villages of the Kampong could be observed be crossing the roads freely to and from the sea. Yeah, I mean, you compare it to now where there's a giant uh, highway basically blocking that area and the sea. It's almost impossible to cross. Today, after the land reclamation, the original land parcel no longer enjoys the close proximity with the sea. The land parcel is cut off by the huge traffic of the roads, making it more inconvenient for inhabitants of the land parcel to go to the sea. Kampong Amber residents were eventually relocated in the 1970s and the site was raised into a clean slate to allow for development. The only trace of the old Kampong Amber is the position of the Chinese swimming club. Upon the tabula rasa of Kampong Amber, four to eight stories residential buildings were built in its place, and together with the new buildings were physical walls and fences to define the boundary of the development. The place was no longer as porous and public as before, and the once large and plentiful communal spaces were reduced to just pedestrian walkways on the periphery of new building developments. The Kampong spirit was destroyed, together with the timber houses that once filled the place. I mean, that's a sad part of our past, right? We always talk about how, yeah, you know, as things change, as things develop, then we lose a bit of that culture. But this is a huge part. As in, if you've been to Katong in this day and age, you would have never figured that we had that kind of lack of infrastructure where people were just living in like open spaces. You had Peranakan culture there, you had colonial culture there, you know, you had all these traders selling cotton and coconut, and then you had all these uh, kampong inhabitants who were basically living off the sea, being able to walk to and fro. So much happening in that space that you wouldn't even know it. I mean, maybe the Peranakan piece is still there, but the rest of it, you wouldn't even know. Even with the urban fabric of Kampong Amber like changing drastically over the years, we talked about the Chinese Swimming Club. It's a race thing, right? But it's called the Chinese Swimming Club. Yeah, why? Uh? Why? I, I know we'll, we'll let you know why in just a bit. Can I go on? Uh? Now you can. Now you can go to the Chinese Swimming Club. But back in the day, it was like this exclusive place. And so the Chinese Swimming Club is, is in Kampong Amber. And since 1921, it oversaw all the changes that happened over the last century. It's actually still in the same location. The significance it placed for its community remained. It had been this like prominent landmark of Kampong Amber and was really a central hub for the Chinese community. Club was founded in uh, 1909, but only moved to a permanent site at Amber Road in 1921. At first, the club rented this place called Bungalow Sea from a wealthy philanthropist called Li Chun Guan, who was also the club's patron back then. And uh, the club was the Chinese response to the exclusive European-only Singapore Swimming Club set up by the British in uh, 1894. So why did we need a Chinese swimming club? Because some white guy said we need a Singapore swimming club that was somehow not for Singaporean. I mean, the concept of a Singaporean back then was also very different. The Chinese Swimming Club was like this prominent gathering place for many English-speaking middle-class families living in Katong. Do you know that the Chinese Swimming Club actually helped produce many world-class athletes? 
like for us back in the day. The club actually drew many notable visits from like prominent people in Singapore back then. So obviously Lee Kuan Yew was there in 1966. Uh, President Wee Kim Wee, you know, 1992. And Tony Tan, President Tony Tan uh, in 2013. Now, thankfully... I couldn't find the date as to when they did this, but the club has extended its membership to non-Chinese and PRs of Singapore. I'm surprised we haven't rebranded it yet. I don't think we need to. I don't think we need to rebrand it. And, I, and, and I'll say why. Think about places like Chinese High or the Chinese Swimming Club. I get it. I get the need for a Chinese response to a European-only hegemony, right? Because the risk is that you eradicate uh, Chinese culture, or I guess more broadly, Asian culture, right? So the Chinese community, of course, had a lot more resources, and so they did what they could to protect their communities. I also agree that if we had a bit more sensitivity back then, maybe we could have taken a broader Asian approach to things. But back then, unification or or harmony between different races was also a large calling in itself. So I think in some ways it's important to recognize the context in which it happened. But I, I think it's a good step that they've extended their membership to non-Chinese now. If that didn't happen, then I think it's a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought it up. I'm glad you brought it up, Rovik. This this was just is really funny. I mean, we talked about this in our racism episode. You know, the SAP program also probably needs to evolve itself a bit. In the same way that the Chinese Women Club probably has. Check out the racism episode. <laughs> a bit more coherent about these things. <laughs> so that that was our history and you know like kind of what the area of Katong was like back in the day. Everything about Katong is rooted in communal spirit and I kind of wanted to uh, position this episode as you know there isn't a lot of exciting things that happened during this time like even during the Japanese occupation there were a few like notable areas like Juchet that was used to have like comfort women housed in but uh, by and large, the main groundbreaker is that for the first time, we actually reclaimed land on this spot and totally changed the landscape of what Katong is like. The effects of land reclamation is something which I don't think a lot of Singaporeans, myself included, think about. In our effort to reclaim land and expand, did we lose something along the way? I think Katong is a pretty good case study that sometimes we do so one of the good things that came out of uh, this place and even throughout you know like land reclamation we didn't re we didn't really destroy like the inside closer to Juchet basically that was an area which has gone mostly untouched and in fact the government has spent a lot of effort to preserve some of its buildings some of which we'll talk about when we look at this section called Katong today uh, I wanted to kind of take a look at places you guys can go to explore and learn a little bit more about Katong's history so the good part is that yes we have put in effort to preserve parts of its culture. Katong is diverse, it's full of fun, and right now, a lot of new like shops. Like, you know, we kind of like preluded a little bit and talked about some of these new cafes. If you're into like $26 brunch, hey, Katong is the place for you. Kimchi Guijang is like a Peranakan store that sells uh, Nonya Kueh, you know, the Pata, those glutinous rice dumplings. And the founder, Madam Kim Chu, she opened the store in like 1945 and she used to have like a, just a small like cart outside uh, or un rather under a, like a banyan tree at Juche place. That's what the official story was supposed to be. And now they occupy one of the old Peranakan shop houses that is very well decorated on the inside along East Coast Road. It's, it's amazing because I think their main mission is to preserve Peranakan culture and to teach people about Peranakan culture. Kim Chu itself, uh, Kim Chu Kuechang, is like a living embodiment of Peranakan culture. We can go there, eat the kueh, you can buy uh, goods 
that like like your kayas and stuff that are made traditionally still they are very nice and friendly in fact uh, one of the things that they offer is like private boutique tours so you can go around they'll prepare like a whole itinerary for you to try things be it like all the different kind of nonya kueis and they even like kind of share with you about the Nanyang heritage and the story of Katong itself I thought that was uh, something which you don't really get that personal intimate sort of like feel in terms of like a learning journey you can go there for a free fitting session that means you can go and like try on like sarong kabayas and stuff and if you're interested in I've never known that you could do that, so very intrigued. If you want a piece of Pranakan clothing for, you know, whenever you might feel like you want to celebrate your uh, Singaporean uh, heritage, hey, why not go ahead and just get a free fitting? We're talking about the old-style Pranakan buildings, right? If people have seen the Painted Ladies in San Francisco, it's a series of very colorful uh, buildings that that are in San Francisco. Actually, Singapore has its own version of that, and it's called the Old Colorful Houses. It's at Kun Seng Road, and it's basically this Puranakan terrace houses that are beautifully painted, very Instagrammable. Actually, the place that you were talking about, Kim Chu Kui Chang, is is also in that same spirit. But this is you know a whole series of old houses side by side. It's absolutely stunning. I've always taken my friends there if they have an extra day to go and take their Instagram pictures, you know. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's a beautiful street. It's also impossible to talk about Katong without talking about Laksa. And if you've listened to our Laksa episode, here's another plug. Uh, if you listen to our Laksa episode, you would know some of the facts. And I, in fact, we've, we probably referred to the Katong Laksa in that episode. But just to recap, Two of the big players along the Katong stretch are the 328 Laksa Gang versus the Jankut Laksa Gang. They are not actual gangs, but you'll be hard-pressed to choose who is the OG Laksa boss in the Katong area. Both are still going strong to this day. Elliot, I mean, you've probably tried both. What's your insights and verdicts about this Laksa war? <laughs> Jankut for life, baby! That's... <laughs> <laughs> I'm a jungle boy forever, dude. It's the one that's inside Roxy Square. So if you go to Roxy Square, it's just this small air-conditioned like uh, coffee shop. It's, it's longer than it actually should be. Um, but they have a lot of good stuff inside it. The one timing is fantastic. But I and the Nasilamak is fantastic. But I always go. I always go for the laksa. It's affordable. It's rich. The broth is always on point. Uh, not that three two eight laksa isn't rich. I rather hide in Roxy Square. Three two eight laksa actually is the easiest one to catch because not everyone walks into Roxy Square. It's probably the dare I say the ugliest building along Katong. But if you're walking down Katong, actually, uh, three two eight laksa is very visible. You'll see many many signs pointing at the original Katong laksa as they will claim. I think what I like about Kato is not just the laksa, but the fact that if I'm eating a spicy dish like that, a lot of casual bars have opened up along that stretch. So once you're done, you can go for like a quick a quick drink to kind of cool off the spice. Another way to cool off. Earth of Paradise, it, honestly, I actually love it. There are some haters who are basically saying it's overhyped. I think it's actually really good. So they got a thyme and lavender cone, or basically a very fragrant cone. That's the most important thing. And they have all kinds of unique flavors that are very, very tasty, actually. Recommend checking out Birds of Paradise and make your own verdict, right? In fact, I just want to put a disclaimer. As we normally do for all our episodes, we are not sponsored by any of these folks, but we gladly do so. Yeah, we would gladly love to be sponsored by these guys. Um, Birds of Paradise, personal favourite. Actually, there is a heritage site that we have preserved and the government has sanctioned to preserve it just right next to it. So if you can't find BOP, actually the Red House Bakery, it's 
if you can't miss it, it's a red house. Okay, this huge red house that looks old and um, it's recently been kind of restored. In fact, it used to be like an old hangout where people would sit and chat and eat like fresh bakery right from the oven. It's just like a two-story shop house, fully painted in red, famous for like traditional cakes, pastries, curry puffs, uh, Swiss rolls. They used to compete with this Chinmi Chin, but Chinmi Chin has unfortunately closed. All the way during the 1960s when the Red House Bakery was alive, it was actually a hangout for like local beds. It's really an institution. Yeah, it really was an institution. Customers like over there would choose and eat the amount of cakes and pastries that they desired and then proceed to the cashier to make payment. And the bakery shop practice a system of payment based on trust, as was the norm among like older establishments. Can you imagine that? A trust-based bakery. Today in Singapore, very hard to find. I think very hard to find. La. But, but this was back in the day. Uh. I think now also the, the current occupants, they don't practice that. A lot of nostalgia that goes into that place because they kind of tried to preserve it as long as they could. It was like this space for like casual meetings for families who wanted to matchmake their children for school partners as well. There were like these matchmaker screens where prospective couples were introduced, they had tea before going off like to the nearby theatre. Interesting, right? This is really a place in which people were doing their social activities all the time. It speaks to why Katong is such a precious part of Singapore, right? And why so many people who grew up there love it. In fact, Elliot, you know, after doing this episode, I'm totally expecting you to take me to Jungkook Laksa first to hang out and then have uh, ice cream at Birds of Paradise and have a beer after. It sounds good. The next time we are going to think about like new ideas, right? Like for like this series and this podcast as we're discussing and reviewing, let's go to Katong. <laughs> for dear listeners, if you guys have a place that you like in Katong, do share with us on our socials. You can go to our Instagram and just like DM us and let us know if there are any other good recommendations that you would share with other people. On that note, we've been releasing episodes pretty regularly a week we're going to take a short one-week break and actually during that one-week break we want to talk to you so we're going to be spending a bit more time on our social media whether it's facebook instagram or even on our personal twitters so do dm us we want to hear about what you've enjoyed so far and what you want to hear more about uh, and you know especially with this cutting episode if you have other recommendations drop it in the comments so that we are able to check those places out as well all right that comes to the end of our episode on Katong. i really hope you guys enjoy it. Rovik, I hope you learned something about my old childhood haunt as well. Absolutely. There's so much, like Kampong Amber, completely new fact for me. And the Chinese Swimming Club. <laughs> <laughs> now we know, now we know. What a trip it was. Well, thank you so much, everyone. It's been a wonderful couple of weeks. We'll be back from a break shortly with some new episodes with a new lineup of guests as well. Exactly. We'll see you soon.